everyone, and welcome to this next episode of the TMI podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rocker Priori, and my co-host for today. Hi, I'm Joshua White. For today's episode, we have James Vardaman, who is the Chair of Excellence in the Management Department in the Folgerman College of Business at the University of Memphis. James is a jack-of-all-trades. He's published in some of our leading entrepreneurship journals, such as Entrepreneurship Theory and Practice, Journal of Small Business Management, and Family Business Review. He's also published in other non-entrepreneurship journals, such as Org Science and the Journal of Organizational Behavior. We are so thrilled to have him here today to talk a little bit about well-being. While James's research focuses more on employee turnover and organizational change, if you've ever met James, you know that he is just one of the kindest people, despite how well accomplished he is, given the short amount of time he's been out of his PhD program. So we thought he would be a fantastic person to have on here to talk about a topic that plagues all of us academics, imposter syndrome. So we're excited to have him on here today and look forward to hearing all of the really great advice we're sure he's has planned for all of us. So, okay, to kick off every episode, we do an icebreaker question. It's all about well-being. We thought, what could be like the environment you could be in that would probably be least conducive to well-being? So the question for you, if you could pick one reality show to be on, what reality show would you be on? Oh, wow. You know, I have actually thought about this question before. So that's, um, I'm not as off guard as you might think. The show I would pick would probably be, be Big Brother. Because unlike Survivor, um, you don't starve. They feed them really well. They've got, you know, they've always got weights and like fitness equipment for them to work out. You know, there's sometimes there's a little pool there. I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of stuff. I, I think it's, it, it seems like they, it's, quite a boring uh, situation, but um, I would not love all the like political plotting against each other that goes on in that show, but it would certainly be a, um, you would not be physically stressed as much on that show. So I think, I, I think I would prefer big brother to like a survivor. A friend of mine actually was like, you should, you should do an audition tape for big brother years ago. I don't think I'm interesting enough to be on big brother. No, I think that'd be cool. How long, James, if you, if you were selected for Big Brother, um, how long do you think that you would make it on the show? <laughs> oh, man, that's a great question. Well, number one, I'd be like 20 years older than everyone on the show, so I'd probably boot me off like first week. But um, I'd like to think I could make it at least a couple of weeks. You know, I mean, I think I could, maybe I could, you know, read the room a little bit and not, I'm just, I just wouldn't fit in. You know, I'm too, I'm too old to be on the, to be to big brothers. Cause like survivor, they'll have like a, a variety of age ranges, but big brother, it's always, you know, people in their early twenties. And I think I would, I would stick out like a sore thumb a little too much. Well, James, I, I guess what I would like to start with is just, if you could tell us about, you know, how you got into the field, um, kind of your background and um, where you came from before entering academia, where you did your PhD and kind of um, how you found yourself, uh, how, how did you make it to where you are now? Yeah, so um, I have, I mean, I think a lot of people in academia have a, a sort of a, a circuitous route. I did not intend to become an academic uh, really until I was finishing my master's degree. So I, I, um, I have an undergraduate degree in accounting and I wanted to, honestly, my goal was either be a partner at an accounting firm or to, you know, like be a CFO at a company or something like that. And I was working as a management accountant um, and my, the company I was working for 
we were a subsidiary of a large company and they, that they divested the subsidiary because we were, we were losing money. Um, so I got a master's degree and just happened to be getting a master's degree. I was at Arkansas state university getting a master's degree. And I, I was a GA for a, an economics professor who was really into research. So we wrote a couple of papers, uh, while I was a master's student and got them accepted to conferences, you know, no publications or anything, but conference papers and, I was just like, I really like this. And so this, this, uh, this econ professor, his name's Gary Guha at Arkansas State, he's still there. He just kind of showed me the ropes of, of academia, told me, you know, sort of what makes a successful academic, what, what our currency is, which is publishing, you know, about the, the sort of the differences in, in journals and um, quality of journals and things like that. He talked to me about the importance of data analysis. And so I kind of just really kind of fell in love with, with doing that. I got a PhD from the University of Memphis, which is where I work now. Even there, I took a very circuitous route. I mean, I I was I studied turnover, and I still do. But I, I really got into turnover is really rooted in most, and most OB research is really rooted in uh, a foundation in psychology. But I was really interested in sociology. I was interested in the way social systems impacted how people behave, and so that took me off in a very far route. And so that's kind of how I how I got into academia. Um, I was not a um, until. I was on the route of, you know, being a corporate person um, until sort of had a, had a shock that upended my life a little bit and went and, went and got a master's degree. And just there, I, found, I sort of found this. I found this just luckily from, from Gary uh, showing me the world and showing me, you know, how fun it could be to, to be an academic and to do research. That's amazing. And I think a lot of times when you take less linear routes to go to become a PhD, that a lot of times you can feel like an imposter, just that you don't know as much. Do you, did you struggle with that? Is it something that um, you felt like it was a big part of your journey? Yeah. I mean, look, everyone feels like an imposter, every single person. Um, I knew, I knew a lot compared to most doctoral students, especially at that time. It seems like the newer, the newer people coming in seem to know a little more than we did, you know, back in, back in the day, air quotes. Uh, it seems like a lot more people came in back in the day. Just sort of like I'm getting a PhD. I don't really know what this means. You know, I know I want to be a professor, but they have no insight into what that actually takes, what it entails or anything like that. Um, people now, I think the students coming in now know a little more because, you know, it's just easier to do research on things like that now. But even, even with that, and even with like in my case where Gary had taught me how to write papers, you know, what, what, a, you know, what an academic paper looked like. I, I knew that when I started. And I still had a crazy bout of imposter syndrome the second I got there, because you still, even if you know all of that going in, you still don't really know anything. You know, you're still, you're still just very naive. I mean, everyone is. And so, um, yeah, I dealt with it big time. I, de I dealt with it a lot. I mean, it was, it was a, um, it, even as a student and, and certainly as a faculty, I mean, you guys aren't really asking me about it as a faculty, but, but it doesn't stop. I mean, you, you know, I kind of consider my first, Five years at Mississippi State, which was my first placement, um, as a second PhD in some ways. I mean, because I it was still just it was very very bad bout of imposter syndrome. A lot of things you still don't know, especially about how you know how to you know how to write a paper and do research. But you don't know how things work at a university. You know, you don't get exposed to that as a student. You don't get exposed to a lot of the politics and things like that. So the imposter syndrome thing does not stop. Um, but one thing that I was able to do that I think helped me through that was I was humble. I just acknowledged that I was, I did not know. I didn't try to, 
I didn't try to act the part. I didn't try to fake it till I made it. I, I acknowledge that, Hey, I, I'm going to humble myself. I don't know exactly what I'm doing. I don't know what this means. I don't know what this is. And that helped a lot. And, and I will say from my experience in graduate school, and it may be different for you guys, but um, it seemed like the people that were not willing to humble themselves are the ones that struggled the most, the ones that, you know, you're just, you're just slowing down the process of overcoming imposter syndrome by faking it till you make it. You know what I mean? You're, you're, you're slowing down the learning process you have to go through. So where you no longer feel like an imposter by pretending that you're, that you, that you are just on top of it and you know everything. I mean, I, I think almost an opposite thought process you have when you have imposter syndrome of, Oh, let me kind of own that. I don't know this much and be humble and not you're constantly trying to feel like you play catch up to other people who know more. So what are some things you think you did or others can do to become more humble? And you just have to recognize that you're doing a whole new thing. Um, you know, I'll give some examples. I mean, it seemed like, you know, when I was at Memphis, we had a pretty large doctoral program in that we had seemed like we had a lot of students. We had more students than we had than we have now where I'm back as a faculty or that we had at Mississippi state when I was a faculty, we had, a, we had a lot of students and it seemed like the students who sort of held on to their old, like private sector identity, you know, that we, cause we had a lot of people who had worked before who had done, you know, managerial jobs who had had some authority or power at their prior, you know, in their prior life before they came back. And, seems like the more people held on to that identity, the, the, the worse it was for them. If you know what I mean? I mean, kind of like now acknowledging this is a whole new thing. Your success in that life doesn't necessarily really translate to success in this life. Cause it's a whole different skill. You know, in a prior life, you're administering a business, you're managing people here, you're researching the people in a business or you're researching how the business functions or how strategic decisions are made. And those are two totally different things. And so you know, it's hard. It's hard. You, your question was, you know, what can people do? I mean, I think it's hard to teach humility, but humility is just the biggest, the biggest thing you can do. It's just understand I'm starting over. Um, that doesn't mean you can't be confident in your abilities, but you should be humble in acknowledging that I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm doing and I need to ask for help. And so a big, a big resource that I got um, was students who were in the program ahead of me really gave me a lot of mentoring, you know, I don't know if you call it mentoring, but support. I could go to them for advice. I guess, I guess it technically is mentoring. Um, I could go to them for advice, um, go to them to get help, go to them to get, you know, insights on, Hey, like, I don't understand, I understand what they're talking, you know, um, I'll give you a great example. Um, when I was a first year student, uh, somebody was talking about, being an associate editor. And then somebody else said something about editorial board. And I was like, I don't understand the difference. I don't know. And, you know, I felt stupid. I felt like, oh gosh, I should know this. This is something that a person in a PhD program should know. Why don't I know this? And so I was able to go to, to a student who's a year ahead of me, a guy named Ivan Muslin, who works at Marshall now. And um, it's like, you know, the AE's the one who, who put their names on it. They make the decision. People in the editorial board do the reviews and like, oh, okay, I get it. And so like, that was really helpful to have that because I, you know, that's it. That's the imposter problem right there. Like, I don't even know the difference between an associate editor and a member of the editorial review board. And I'm a PhD student. And so, um, you know, relying on the people who've, who've had a year or two on, you know, ahead of you in the program, if they're willing to talk to you, which hopefully in most programs they would, they would be, 
was really helpful to me. And so luckily for me, our program didn't have a lot of, you know, we weren't, we weren't competing with each other or trying to cut each other's throats. I mean, everyone wanted each other to succeed. And I think that's how it is at most of the programs, you know, around the country and around the world. Um, so that, that's a really useful resource. And that helped, that helped me to be honest with you. And I try to pay, I try to, I try to pay that, you know, forward to students who were behind me in the program and actually still to doctoral students now. I mean, I try to, I try to give them sort of that, um, soft skill stuff in, in the profession, not just all about writing papers or doing analysis, but also details about the profession, how the profession works, how the university works, you know, things that, things that can really hurt your, hurt your sort of, or create that imposter syndrome thing. You know, I don't even know how this works and I'm trying to do this. I try to give them that knowledge because that's a lot of that stuff's not in programs. You know, you don't get that out of a seminar. So um, searching that stuff out from, from people who could informally mentor you is really helpful. So James, how is it now, you know, you've battled imposter syndrome. I'm sure you working with doc students, you see them doing it. And you talked about a little bit of the mentorship you got as a doc student from other doc students. What are the types of things you do now when you're working with doc students to try and help them move past these feelings of imposter syndrome and feel like that this is the career that might be worth pursuing for them? Well, what I do, you know, I do a lot of things. Um, um, I do provide a lot of, you know, emotional support. I, I don't know, you know, I don't want to use cycle babble or whatever, but I mean, I, I guess you would define it as emotional support. I try to tell them, Hey, you know, this is hard. I mean, if, if this wasn't hard, everyone would do it. We wouldn't make, the, we wouldn't be paid as well as we are. You know, you know, if this was easy to do, everyone would be doing it. And so, you know, it's going to be hard. Um, another thing I try to do is in order to sort of create confidence, especially in you know, early doctoral students, I try to break down um, sort of like writing a paper into little steps that I can sort of give them feedback on or assist them with each step of the way. So I teach a research methods um, doctoral seminar. And so one thing I do is I spend a little bit of time. I mean, you know, that you wouldn't generally think writing an intro is part of the, the sort of, you know, content of a research methods course, but I think it's a really important thing to sort of establish the contribution you're going to make with your study. And so I take a couple of weeks where I have them bring in intro, just intros, not, not full papers, just introductions so that I can critique their intro and, and be like, Hey, you're not, you know, are, you know, are you motivating this question? Are you motivating your, your, your study? To where it's going to be a contribution. And so I think by breaking that down into little steps, little manageable steps, it helps create confidence uh, for students to, to, so that they can feel like, hey, I can do this. I can overcome this. So, and I do that with everything. I do that with, you know, when we're writing method sections, I do that when we're doing data analysis, things like that. I try to break it down into little digestible steps so that they can get it and then get a small win and feel good about it uh, moving forward. And so that's not really something that I think is pretty very conventional, you know, in, in our field. I think a lot of times it's, you know, it's, Hey, write a paper, give it to me. I'll give you feedback. See what things I try to do it, you know, sort of a step at a time so that they, um, they can gain confidence and feel better about it. It doesn't always work, you know, but I mean, I think it's something that, um, it's a good approach to, to sort of, especially for early doctoral students to building confidence and making them feel good about things. I think doing that for your doc students probably makes so much more of an impact than I think they even vocalize. I think 
I think an important thing is that, and you guys will find this out, you forget really, really quickly what it was like to be a student a few years after you've been a faculty member. I, I know that seems crazy to think about, but it happens. I mean, it really happens. And there are times when students do things and you say, what are they thinking? But then if you can put yourself back in their shoes, but fact, most people don't do that. You know, I mean, most faculty don't do that. And so one thing that's really helpful for faculty is to, to just sort of step out of your, your role you're in right now and think back to what it was like to be a student. And, and this imposter syndrome thing, which is the topic of the podcast, which is really cool, made me think a lot. This is a real thing. And, and you don't know what people are going through. I mean, I mean, you could have students who are, for example, say they are a little, they've been out of school a little while, could just be thinking, it's just been too long. I can't do this anymore. All this math, all this complicated analysis, I can't do this. Like these young kids can do this. Or it could be someone who went to, you know, a school that's not considered top level at under, for an undergrad or a master's. They could be feeling like they're not good enough because they, you know, oh, they, these people went to such a better school than I did. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I can't compete with them. I can't do this. All kinds of thoughts go through people's minds that you just aren't thinking about, you know, that, that from the outside, it's hard to see and, and they don't seem like reasonable or rational thoughts, but to the person experiencing them, they really are. And so a lot of times just being sensitive to that kind of stuff can be really helpful. Um, and again, I mean, it's not like I'm perfect at doing that, but I do try, I do kind of try to get back and think about what it was like um, because doctoral students, you know, for example, you guys, you know, you're three years into a whole new life, a whole new career, you know, I mean, something that you've never done before and you're competing at the highest levels at it. So it's, it's almost like, you know, someone um, trying to play in the NBA when they started playing basketball three or four years ago. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost, that's almost like a, a reasonable um, comparison. You know what I mean? Because, because you're competing for journal space with the very best in the world at this. And so um, it can be quite stressful and, um, Sometimes I think it's difficult if you don't step back and look at what, you know, just sort of be a little understanding toward people. I don't, I don't think, I don't think students could be, should be coddled or anything like that, but I think that there is a, there is a reasonableness to people freaking out and panicking and having, just having a moment every now. I mean, there really is because it's, it is something completely new and sometimes we lose sight of that. I think that's so important is, um, you know, to, I guess, reduce the stigma around it or maybe, you know, um, and that's part of the reason why we're doing this podcast and this topic specifically is to is to put it out there and say, like, everybody feels this way. It's totally normal. And, you know, um, these this is what this is what you should do about it or how you should help. And I think, you know, you've helped us identify, you know, a lot of good things, you know, finding mentors and, um, you know, finding people that you can count on being humble, things like that. Um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about. I don't know if you remember this, but um, you came to the University of Alabama and um, you did uh, you had a little brown bag with the Ph.D. students. You gave some of the best advice there um, in terms of how to stay productive and, you know, within a Ph.D. program, how do you maintain your research productivity? But you said um, basically it was that you write well into the night, I believe, and that you you don't there's no there's no time limit. And what you were saying is, is that, you know, people kind of place these artificial boundaries on product, on productivity and creativity. And then, and then you're like, you're like, no, you need to, you need to find your flow. And if it happens at midnight, then you just need to stay there and, and, 
and go and rather than like put yourself back in these uh in these boxes of you know well gotta go to sleep now you know or whatever um how do you stay so productive in, in what you do um and produce the quantity of research that you have produced that that came from that came honestly from observation when i was an when i was an assistant professor i mean i i was i was um you know, I was friends with a lot of people who were also assistant professors at the time. And, and you know, everyone is struggling. I mean, that that's, another, you know, you could do this podcast again for assistant professors, by the way, because it's, there's there's a whole nother set of struggles that come with it. You're under this tremendous amount of stress to get tenure. Um, you no longer have your mentor, your advisor or mentor there with you physically um, to lean on. So, I mean, it can be, it can be a tough time too. So th this, this really came from from reading a lot of performance books and also um, just some some observation and so and some personal experience. So what I figured out was what we do is really creative work. I mean, I know that you know most people that would read our our papers probably wouldn't compare them to a Tom Clancy novel or something like that for entertainment value, but but we really are engaged in creative work. I mean, it, it, writing these papers is difficult, as you guys know. I mean, I sometimes will struggle just making a transition from one paragraph to another for hours, you know, I mean, you guys can probably um, identify with that. Well, one thing I learned is one thing I sort of figured out is, is having that kind of creative creativity, that sort of, you know, inspiration, that spark doesn't happen all the time. I mean, so you sit down at the computer, you want to write, you just don't have it. It's not even really writer's block. It's just, there are times you're sort of, you know, very efficient and in the zone and then times you're not. And what I discovered was, was that if I had a bunch of things scheduled throughout the day, you know, phone calls or, you know, I was going to go to, you know, a book signing or a renaissance fair or something, you know, in the afternoon, you know, at five o'clock, if I had something scheduled for five o'clock, if those were one of the days when I had the, the, the creative spark going, the energy going, you know, it would really stink because I would have to stop and, and go do what I was supposed to do. When I came back, I didn't have it anymore. And so the advice I was giving you guys at, at uh, Bama that day was, and this is something I say a lot. So um, schedule long periods of time for your writing, open-ended periods. And if you have it going, don't stop. So try not to schedule things on the, on the, on the, on the, on the back end of when you're going to be trying to write or do something creative like that. Because if you have to stop, you're not going to have that same inspiration. If you get it going, you're not going to have that inspiration once you take a break and then come back. From, from going and doing another activity. So what I do is if I have it going, if, if things are going really well, if I'm, if I'm really being productive, if, if the ideas are coming, if I'm able to write eloquently and make those transitions without a lot of trouble and things like that, I just won't stop. I will not stop until I physically can't, can't go anymore. Even if, you know, till two or 3 a.m., that's what it takes because I never know when I'm gonna get that back. Ideally, what I like to do is if I'm gonna be writing, I try not to have any distraction or anything scheduled on the back end of that. Like I've, I've got the rest of the day. Now, sometimes I don't have it. I mean, sometimes, you know, I sit there for two or three hours. It just doesn't, it's not there. And then I can choose to stop and go do something if I want to. But on those days where I do have the creative inspiration, I'll have the whole day opened up. I can just do it. And so I, I think that is really great advice. And a lot of my friends that sort of struggled in that early period, I tended to notice they were like, you know, my scheduled writing from one to five before I have this at five and, 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 I would kind of notice like, hey, that might be what's, so I, I would ask them like, hey, did, did you have it going that, did you have it going before you had to stop and go do this or that? And, yeah, I was going good. And then the next day I just couldn't get it back. And so 
yeah, those those open-ended long periods where you can really you know run with it. Those are really important because that's where a ton of your productivity comes from. So there's a book called Deep Work. Uh, the author's Cal Newport. He talks about some of that stuff. So even going back to um, there's a book called The Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss way back. I think it was published in 07 or something like that. That that has a little bit of stuff about this. And so you got to kind of dig for that kind of those kind of that kind of tip, you know, of creative work. Being overscheduled is a really negative thing. You need to have those open, those wide open spaces so that if you get it going, you can really push through and, and just make a ton of progress like that. So, yeah, I mean, my, my under eyes look like this because of too many nights uh, up till 3 a.m. Uh, following that, uh, that my own advice. So maybe it might not be the best for my, uh, for my physical appearance, but it's, it's been, it's been good. It's helped me be productive. I, I want to acknowledge that there are people who have limitations that can't just can't do that. You know, like, so I have young kids. So that, 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 I, that thing is harder now. So actually, actually I made a joke about my, my, my under eyes. They actually look like this because I still do that, but, but I now have to also be up early because the young kids have to be up early. Right. So, I mean, like there, there's sacrifice involved with that. So, I mean, you know, if I have a big, a big, um, you know, run where I'm, where I'm up till two or 3 AM because the writing's going really well. And I don't want to, I want to have that maintain that creative spark and get the most out of it. I have to pay the price a little bit the next day, especially, you know, we've been in the, you know, we've been in the COVID uh, situation. So, you know, everybody's at home. Kids are, kids are wanting time, even, you know, from, you know, early morning, you know, I mean, there are sacrifices involved with that, but I mean, I really believe that's just the best way to be productive. One more question. If you could give yourself one piece of advice, knowing what you know now, what is the one piece of advice you would have given yourself when you started your PhD? That's a great question, man. That's a hard one. That's a hard one. I really, I really enjoyed my PhD program. I have like very few regrets about anything I did, you know, like I, I cause I, I worked very hard and I also really loved the people I was with in the program. And we, I mean, I just had a great time. It was one of the, I look back on that as one of the best times of my life. The advice I would give myself if I could go back would be my advice is going to be a little different than most people probably. But what one thing I didn't do very well, and it was when I was an assistant professor, I did not put, I did not, I did not do a good job of understanding where the senior professors at my, at the university at Mississippi state, where I, where I started, were coming from. Like I didn't, I didn't, you know, I talked earlier in the podcast about, putting myself in doctoral students' shoes, you know, to understand where they're coming from. I did not do a great job of thinking about where the senior people, where I placed, where, where they were in their lives and what they, what their priorities were, what they were expecting from an assistant professor. I was just, I want to do great on my research. You know, I want to be, I want to be great. I want to work. I want to do this. I want to do that. I did not think about what their priorities might've been or some of the politics that were going on at the university or the college or the department at the time. So if I could go back, the one, the one piece of advice I'll give myself is to, is to think about putting yourself in other people's shoes. When you start your new job, we, we talked to you about how to be a doctoral student. We don't talk a lot about how to be an assistant professor because you don't know what's going on at the university where you're placing before you got there. You might know that they're nice people, that they're, they're this, they're that they like, you know, they're focused on research, they're this, they're that, but you don't really, you don't really know what the history is between people or in the department before that. And so um, 
uh, I think the advice that like to summarize the advice would be like tread lightly for the first couple of years when you're there and, and, and try to get a feel for how things are. I, I loved hearing about your experience and, um, and, uh, and your career and your insight for, for us, the doctoral students um, who are, you know, working hard to build the, you know, the next, next uh, generation. So, yeah. I think this is exactly what we were looking for for this episode. Thanks for inviting me. This was great. I love talking about this this with you guys. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Josh. Thanks a lot, Ashley. Thank you so much. We really, really, really appreciate you taking time, even at your um, at your parents' house. They're um, celebrating Thanksgiving with them. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time to to be with us. So again, a big thanks to James for being here for this episode. We want to thank you all for listening and remind you to submit your questions or suggestions for future episodes to our email, t-m-i-e-n-t-p-o-d at gmail.com. And be sure to check the link in the bio for this episode to find information on James and his email and all the social media platforms for the entrepreneurship division. We'll see you next time.